Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media and Sunseeker TV, in association with Carl Anthony Payne Entertainment, present Black Arm of the Law. Hey, everybody, everybody. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Black Arm of the Law. It's the one and only host, me, a.k.a. CP Time, a.k.a. Black First, Black Always, a.k.a. Carl Payne. Today we are joined by a retired FBI agent, a veteran of the Bureau, stellar career, a man who um, has done some wonderful things, for this country and for the community. Please welcome Mr. George Graves. George Graves, welcome. Hey, Carl, how are you? Thanks for having me. Man, I'm doing wonderful, wonderful. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from the lovely, sunny uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. Hilton Head, a.k.a. Mayberry. Yeah. Yeah, it can be considered a little bit of a Mayberry uh, compared to where I came from. All right, just do me a favor, man. If you walk past uh you walk past a window and you smell some pies baking in the window, don't dip your finger in the pie, man. Leave it alone. Just keep walking. Yeah, I hear you, man. I I, I saw the help. I'm gonna stay away from those pies. Stay away from all the pies. All the pies in Mayberry. Um tell us. So where are you from originally though? Originally I'm born and raised in New Jersey, just outside of Plainfield, New Jersey, right in the heart of central Jersey. And uh, born, grew up there, uh, went to college there, and uh, spent probably most of my life there. All right, so that's where you started your career, but you ended it in South Carolina. Is that correct? I started my career with the FBI back in November of 1995. Went through new agent training out of the uh, New Agent Training Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Spent four months in new agents training. Um, I put in as my number one office to be assigned to uh, Newark, New Jersey, Newark field office, because I wanted to go back home. And uh, the FBI was uh, too kind to send me back to Newark since. But that doesn't happen very often, huh? (laughs) They they usually send you exactly the opposite of where you want to go. But um, Newark is not typically the most uh, desired of the field offices in the FBI. And so whenever someone raises their hand and want to go back there, right. Uh, they're too eager to send you. If you know yeah, what I mean. They was happy to send your ass back. They was like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Go on. We're yeah, East Orange. Fact, yeah. Everyone in my class was, was too happy that I, I volunteered for Newark because they probably had it last on their list. So how long were you with the Bureau? Uh, I was with the Bureau for 24 years. Uh, I did 15 and a half. Yeah, 24 years, believe it or not. I did 15 and a half years in Newark. And then in 2011, um, I felt like it was time for a change. And so I put my name on a list of uh, transfer, what we call Office of Preference or OP transfer, mm-hmm. to um, go work out of the Columbia, South Carolina field office. And um, I got a call one day. Uh, in April 2011, and uh, from Washington D.C. headquarters, they said, "George, you've got uh, the transfer has come through. If you want it, to go to Columbia Division out of the Buford Resident Agency Office." And so, the the Resident Agency Office, for those who aren't familiar with Bureau uh, nomenclature, is uh, a satellite office, and out of the Columbia Field Office, and there are smaller satellite offices that are located throughout the state um, that report to the main field office. And so there was a small two-man office uh, in Beaufort County down here in Hilton Head, and um, that's where I got my uh, office of preference transferred to. And so my wife and I thought about it, prayed about it, decided it was time to get up and roll out of Jersey, and uh, we took the transfer in 2011 mm-hmm. back in June of 2015, you recall the Mother Emanuel AME church shooting in Charleston. 
Wait a second. Um, wait, wait. Hold on. Are you saying that you worked that case? Yes, I did. Um, I wasn't the lead case agent. Uh, another one of my colleagues was. But I'll explain how I got involved in that case. Oh, man, I got to hear this. Yeah, yeah. I need to hear this one. Go ahead. Break it down. So the night of the of the shooting, uh, ironically, let's, I was, let's just let's let's start with with explaining to people who might be listening what what why this date is significant and what what this date re uh, um, uh, represents. Um, for those of you who might be listening out there, uh, we are talking about the the church shooting that was uh, perpetrated by Dylan Roof. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. Continue, please. Yeah, I think it was June. I want to say June 17, 2015. And the reason why that date is etched in my mind is it was a Wednesday night, and I was uh, I was teaching Bible study at my church. Wow. Uh, I get home, um, put my kids to bed, and my cell phone goes off, and it's my boss, my supervisor, who's in Charleston. Uh, I have again, I'm in a small office down in Beaufort County. Charleston's two hours away from me. But I right. report to that. I report to that office in in Charleston, and he. I could tell by he normally doesn't call me that late, and I could tell when he called me that in his, by his voice that something terrible had happened. And so he said, "Georgia was a shooting at at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, and um, and I I, I I may need you to come up to work." And I said, "Okay." You, I said, "Right away, you knew it wasn't nobody black did that." Well, I didn't know what to think at the time. I mean, I was just shocked. I was just like, man, who would go into a church and start shooting? And um, and then I was just thinking about I, I just left my church. You know, it could have happened in right. my church. Right. And so um, I asked him if he needed to report right away. And he said, no, I've got I've got a, our other agents out on the scene. Um, and um, I need you to probably come up around 6 a.m. to relieve them because we're going to start working shifts. The shooter is still at large. We don't know who he is. And um, right now there's just a lot of chaos going on. And I said, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll report at 6 a.m. So, you know, I went to bed and I got a few hours of sleep and then I had to hop in the car at 4 a.m. to get to Charleston by 6. I get to Charleston. I report to the command post that was set up. Uh, we're trying to identify who the shooter was. We still hadn't known at that time. And we're covering leads everywhere. Right. And so right around about... 10, 30, 11 o'clock, we finally got a lead that there was a, a civilian, a woman, I believe, who spotted Dylan Roof's car. And by the way, by that time, there was a video from the church's camera that right. we were able to pull and identify the young man as Dylan Roof. So we know who he was. Um, a woman spotted him in Shelby, North Carolina, and he was in custody. Shelby police arrested him without incident in a traffic stop. And so my boss came to me and said, George, I want you to go to Shelby to interview him and to bring him back. Now, Carl, you got to understand something. In the Columbia Division at the time, uh, I was only one of two black FBI agents in the entire state. Right, right. I, I, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure of that. In South Carolina, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, so I'm shocked that he's asking me now. Now, Dylan Rudy, right. just what was going through your what was going through your mind at the time, man? Nine black people, and I, I asked, and I never questioned my supervisor. But I said, Brian, <laughs> are you sure that you think I'm the the right guy to send out there to go talk to him? Because, you know, typically when we ever we want to try to uh, get a statement from someone and a confession, you want to send the person or individual who you think has the best opportunity to get a statement or confession. Right. And, and so the fact that, you know, this is a hate crime. So wait, shot wait, killed nine wait, black people. Wait, wait. so you were asking. So wait a second. You trying to tell me you was only asking because because of the confession or was there a part of you like, girl, I'm not the right one to send over here. Like you really said to me, like, come on, well, there had to be a part of you like, you sure you want to send me? Yeah, I, I I I never second guessed my boss, but and I never second guessed my ability. But I I was thinking in terms of uh, of the having the right outcome, you gotcha, know. And, gotcha. and if I'm not the right guy, I don't want to go. I would rather someone else go who has a better opportunity of getting a confession. Not that I couldn't. It's just that under the circumstances, I felt is this the right strategy? Um, 
But my boss turned to me and said, George, you're one of my most senior guys. I want you to go. You're the right guy. So I get on a plane with uh, another um, state office, police officer assigned to our task force and two Charleston police department, police officers. The four of us fly from Charleston to Shelby, North Carolina uh, to go interview Dylan Roof and then escort him back to Charleston to turn him over to the custody of the, the uh, sheriff's department or, or the federal marshals. Uh, we landed in this little airport in Shelby, North Carolina. I mean, it, it kind of reminded me of, if you remember the old sitcom Wings, um, you know, just this little podunk airport. And so we're waiting there uh, for the Shelby police officers to bring Dylan Roof uh, to transfer him over to our custody. And while I'm waiting there, I get a call from my office and they advise me that um, two of my other colleague, FBI colleagues from Columbia while we were delayed flying into Shelby, they drove from Columbia, South Carolina, to Shelby, North Carolina, and they actually arrived before I did, and they were given the, the green light to interview uh, Dylan Roof. And so they had hmm. already um, talked to Mr. Roof. My understanding was, you know, they – and obviously his, his interview is public record. It's all over YouTube. You can pull it up. Um, and so at that point, I was instructed that I did not have to interview him because he was already being interviewed. And my job and the other three officers with me were just to simply escort Mr. Roof, take him into transferred custody to our, our custody and bring him back on the plane to Charleston. Wow. Wow. So I'm, so I'm sitting there and it was weird because as we're waiting, you know, all of a sudden, I guess word of mouth must have come around that they were bringing Roof to the airport. Because all of a sudden I just saw this this wave of media um, surrounding this little airport. You know, there were helicopters in the in this air and uh, press all over the place. So now, do you think do you think your boss? I mean, you know, in hindsight, do you think he sent you? You know, because he knew that was going to happen politically. No, I, I don't believe that at all. I believe he sent me with, with, with the clear directive of interviewing John Roof. Um, and, and to be honest with you, I, I never questioned his motivation of why he sent me. Um, maybe, you know, some people have speculated he sent you because you, you wanted Roof to see a black face in law enforcement and take him into custody. Right. I, I don't know that it'd be true. I never had a conversation with my supervisor over his motivation for sending me. Um, his wow. only comment to me was that you're one of my senior guys. And I, I know that you're capable of, of doing the interview, and I'm sending you. Okay. All right. So the media shows up. Paparazzi is a frenzy going on. And then what? So the uh, Shelby police arrive with, with Dylan Roof. The, um, uh, I asked them to bring him to the rear of the airport because it was all the media was in front. And I did worry at that point in time. I mean, I didn't know. You know, for his safety, my safety, you know, sometimes when people do really crazy things, there's other people out there who might want to exact vengeance on him, and shoot at him and might be shooting at me in the process. So I wanted to protect him and protect myself and the other officers with me. So I, I asked the Shelby police to bring him around to the rear of the airport, which they did. And then um, they brought him out. Um, I went out to the tarmac to meet them. Um, I took took Mr. Roof. And we walked him onto the plane. Um, but what was interesting is that, that when we got him onto the plane, it, it's a, it was a five-seater King Air small plane. And the other officers with me sat uh, a, a kind of away from me, and there was two seats that faced each other. And so I sat Mr. Roof directly across from me on the plane. And he was so small in there, and my knees were literally touching his knees. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Hell no. So, Hell no. So I'm, I'm looking no. at him, mm -mm. and he's looking at me, or trying not to look at me, actually. Uh, he's kind of looking out the window of the plane. And so... Um, well, but, what was his, but what was his face like at the time? Like, what was he, what was he, you know, did it look like he was remorseful? Did he, you know, how did he look? I mean, if you were, if you were to give your, you know, uh, opinion, or should I say, hesitation as to what what was happening in that moment, what, you know, from your POV was, what did it seem like, you know? You know, he looked very tired. 
Um, my understanding was that, and I found this out later, that he was up all night driving around after the shooting. Um, he clearly did not want to engage me. Um, he would not really look at me directly in the face. Uh, he looked out the window. He I'd have been burning a hole through his skull with my eyeballs. Like I would have burned into his soul with my eyeballs. Like I, I can't imagine. I, 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 what, what were you thinking at the time? Tell the truth. You wanted to open up the plane door once you got up, and you wanted to, you wanted to just show him what it looked like from the other side. Tell the truth. You 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 want. No, you know, I gotta tell you, Carl. I was. Um, uh, I had a, a, a mixed emotions, wave of emotions, as I'm sure anybody would. Obviously, this is. Uh, I mean, because you, you said yourself, you were just at. I mean, you're a God fearing man. You were at church praying, but I mean, I mean, the, the the nature of this particular crime is just is ridiculous. I mean, you you know, here's a. I mean, from what we understand, right? Here's a here's a guy who sat and prayed with them first. They welcomed him you know, into the fold. And I mean, God, you know, I can't imagine watching that footage. You know, I can't even imagine what that would look like. And I don't want to, um, you know, prayers for all the families involved as we're discussing this. But I'm just saying, please explain the emotions that we're going through. Because I, I can only imagine me, me, even, you know, and I know when you're on the job and you, you know, you have a different mindset and you kind of just put yourself in, but some things go deeper than that. You know, as, as a, you know, as not only just as a black man, as a human being, but yeah. in this case, definitely as, as, as a person of color, as a black man, please, please explain to me what your emotions were at that time. Yeah, I had a range of emotions, Carl. Honestly, I, um, I I looked at him. He looked like he was just a young kid, you know. And, and then I looked down at his hands, and because uh, you know, I don't know why I was fixated at his hands. Because maybe it's because they train us that your hands can hurt you. Um, and I re and I just the thought went over my my mind that these were the hands that just pulled the trigger and killed nine innocent people in a church, who looked just like me. Uh, and so I went from, you know, being angry, but then reminding myself I'm a professional. Um, I have to treat uh, treat him as I would anyone else in my care and custody. And my 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 goal and my orders were to get him safely from A to B. Um, having said that, you know, I'm still human. And so um, I I initially felt like how could someone have failed this young man? Like who failed you in your life mm. that you would get you to this point that you would go into a church that you would pray with people and then you would, without provocation that you would just ruthlessly murder them. And so I almost felt sorry for him for the mm. fact that someone along the line failed him um, to get him to this point. And no sooner did I feel sorry for him that I got angry for feeling sorry for him. Exactly. I'm glad, I'm glad you said that. Okay. All right. We're okay. on the same page. But, but just so you understand the range of emotion that I'm yes. experiencing. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so th uh, at that point, I said, look, I have a job to do. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to get him safely from this point uh, to the next. And I, and I said, I'm going to treat him like I would anyone else that I've, I've been in my care and custody who have, and I've conducted numerous arrests over the course of my career. And typically I would ask someone, you know, um, do you take prescription medication? Because I want to know that if you need medication for something, that I need to be aware of your health condition. So I asked right. him, I said, right. Mr. Roof, are you, do you need to take any kind of prescription medication? And he, he, he looked over at me. He said, no. Uh, I said, have you eaten anything in the last, you know, couple of hours? He said, well, they gave me some food when they first arrested me. I said, okay. So wait, well, we yeah, is that is that the whole story I heard about them taking him to Burger King or something? Well, yeah. I, I, I don't, I didn't know anything about that. I, I, I Did you hear about that? I mean, I subsequently you? heard that they, they, they got him food from Burger King. Now, I don't know that they took him there or they picked up the food and then gave it to him. I don't know. No, they they were actually kind enough to that. stop and grab him something to eat. That, that's what I understand. Yeah, that's what I understand. So, uh, um, so I said, I don't have any food on the plane for you. 
but I will make sure that I tell the sheriff deputies when we get to Charleston that it's been several hours since you ate. Um, and then I said, well, we have water. It was a very hot day. I remember it was very hot in that plane. Um, and I said, well, I have some water and I can give you some water. Um, and that's what I typically offer anyone who's in my custody because uh, it's a humane thing to do. And so I reached into that cooler and I grabbed him water and, and I, um, he couldn't hold the water really because he, his hands were, he was puffed, um, uh, around his waist with what we call a belly band and he had leg irons on. So I actually held, I un, unscrewed the water and I, and I held the water up to him and I, and I gave him the water. I fed wow. it to him. Wow. You are, you, 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 are, you, you, you something, you a better man than me. You are no, better. I don't, I don't, I don't see it that way. I just felt. So you were, you, you were on some what would Jesus do? That was that was kind of your thought process. Yeah, you know what? To be honest with you, Carl, I I, I will say that was kind of a God moment. I mean, uh, I, I really felt like God. I, at first, I was saying, "Well, I'll just hand it to him," but I, then I realized I don't think he could really hold it. So I really felt like though, you know, and, and a lot of people might call this. Uh, I don't know. I felt the Holy Spirit telling me you need to you need to serve Him um, because He you might be the only Jesus He sees. Wow! And uh, wow. even He can be redeemed according to my faith. Um, even even uh, even a Dylan Ruth can be redeemed. Wow! Wow! And that you know you know what's interesting about what you just just uh, just described is I think. You know, I think for the most part, and it's been my experience growing up in a black household, black families that, you know, which is so crazy how they call us the violent ones, because we've always shown compassion for the most part. You know, we've always been the ones to turn the other cheek, to forgive, to show compassion, especially in the black, uh, 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 should I say, I don't want to say, but yeah, religious community. You know, these are the most forgiving people on the planet. Right. You know, so, so I always find it interesting when they call us violent. It's like we, 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 we're not by nature. That is not who we are. We, we've learned it. It is something that has been, you know, a learned behavior or a reaction, but not something that uh, uh, is just by nature, you know. Right. And, and I hear these, yeah. you know, so, so, so uh, I, hear, I hear these, uh, what do you call it? Did you feel like, because I mean, just listening to you, I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad at you or pissed or enraged, but I'm just, I'm just imagining what I would have been dealing with as well. You know, how hard, difficult that was to try to, you know, you know, again, you know, the duality of it all, sitting there having to deal with that moment. Here's this person's knee. I'm petty, by the way. I'm super petty. So he couldn't, his knee couldn't touch my knee. <laughs> I'm, I'm Petty Murphy. I'm Petty Petty Labelle. I, I, his knee did not have touched my knee. <laughs> yeah, we were. I we, might have, we were I right, probably we would have held up. the water out and drank it and let it fall down my face and let the water just you know I'd have tortured him the whole way. Like I, I don't know. I don't know how I could. Have, I know, that was a that that's a I, I can't imagine that moment. I can't imagine that you know that that is. That's something, man. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, you know, it's it's just it's something that just just came over me. I believe that was the spirit of God. But it was interesting when I when we we landed in Charleston, transferred Mr. Roof over to the custody of the sheriff deputies. Um, one of the one of the officers with me said, he says, uh, George, how'd you do it? I said, what are you talking about? He says, how'd you do it? How'd you give him the water? And I said, you know what, Joe, I don't know. Uh, I can only say it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was a God thing. Hmm. God thing. But uh, you know what, Carl, in the aftermath of that, um, you know, and I, after I turned him over and I, um, I left and headed home. Yeah. In the yeah. days, the days that followed that, um, a significant thing happened during Ruth's bail hearing. Um, and it's been much publicized that the victim's family had an opportunity to address the judge over the terms of his bail. And it gave each of the family members an opportunity to talk and address the court. Right. And one after another, they got up and they 
they expressed their, their hurt, their pain. But what was amazing is the, the amount of, and you refer to it in, in, the, in the black faith, black community, the amount of forgiveness they demonstrated towards him was absolutely incredible. And it really set the tone for the city of Charleston because the family's level of, of forgiveness and grace held back a lot of the anger from that in that city because as you know i mean that that city could have erupted um but in contrast um there was a lot of peaceful demonstration there there was memorials in front of manual church where people from i mean white black young old uh they were hugging praying crying uh, and on my way back from after I dropped roof off, it was getting dark and I, I, uh, I saw these people on the street and I got nervous because I thought, I said, man, they might be jumping off up in here. Like Mike might turn into Ferguson. And, and I looked over and I just saw all these people coming out of this, this, this park and they were pouring out onto the street on meeting street and they had candles. And they were quietly walking from that park down to Calhoun Street where Mother Emanuel Church is. And what they had just come out of was a prayer vigil. And it was peaceful. They were white. They were black. Um, and they were just quietly walking, praying, heading towards Mother Emanuel Church. It was, it was something I wish I could have captured on film, honestly. But it, it was that kind of spirit that really kept the city of Charleston and the family, the, the way the victim's family responded. I think was so critical in keeping that situation under control because it could easily have gotten out of control. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's almost like the question comes up, is this part of the reason why we are who we are as black people? You know what I mean? And, you know, cause I mean, he killed, he killed black people in a church. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you might, you, you know, I don't know. I just yeah. For me, you know, I, you know, the, the 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 docileness, the complacency, the the you know. I think I think we you know. For me, I I feel like we've been that way too long. We've been that enough. That, that you know, which is why I think we see a lot of the the changes we've seen now that that are happening. I mean, um. And I think you know because that's a that's a that's a thing that they that that's a that's a known fact. It's almost like it's almost like when you're in a an abusive relationship and you know that you can pretty much do whatever you want to do and still come home and sleep comfortably because you know nothing's going to happen because you've done it time and time again and nothing happened. But I think if more people were like that, that thin line song, if more people was like the, that, that that Al Green story, that this this shit could have changed a long time ago, in my opinion. And 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 you know that's just me speaking. I'm speaking. This is CP speaking. That that if if, if you know because you because you push one too many buttons, you push too far. You know you you put too many ingredients in the cake. You know, and this this is bound to happen. People are gonna, you know, gonna got a powder keg. Yeah, I think uh, you talked earlier, Carl, about what has to change. And I think the the, the critical point, and what what we're seeing is changing. Number one is attitudes, especially in the white community. Mm -hmm. We need we need stakeholders in order for. Um, and the reason why I think the the, the BLM movement has has gotten traction the way it has post George Floyd is, is that you're getting alliances from a lot of, uh, allies, people, allies, allies yeah. who are finally standing up and not being silent and shining a light on this issue that we've been talking about. So you, you need, you need partnerships. I think that's critical. Number one on the ground. Number two, in the law enforcement community, um, a lot of people are talking about, Oh, we need reform. We need to defund. We need, uh, training. And all that is fair game. I, I, but I will say this. Number one, in policing, it comes with putting the right person in the job. Right. And not only that has to occur when you have people with the right heart posture, people who value people's lives. 
Right. So, so is that is that part of the? I'm sorry. Is that part of the vetting process, though, if you will? That that's part of the vetting. To me, I think the critical point is, who are you hiring? Exactly. Starts okay. there. Are yeah. you, uh, it starts there, and, and the person has to have a heart for people, a real heart for people, not just some people, for everybody. I think they gotta. I think they gotta. Uh, um, they have to employ Chick Fil A. See, Chick Fil A, they don't just hire anybody. They they will they they do their homework. That's right. I mean, That's like great, honestly, great if you, if, uh, I'm just being honest. Like Chick Fil A, yeah. first of all, provides some of the best customer service I've ever seen in my life. Even though they're not one of our sponsors just yet, so and they got yeah. one of the best chicken sandwiches out there. I didn't even try Popeyes when that whole craziness was going on. I, you know, I, I didn't even do it because I thought that was a part of the Tuskegee experiment again. I was like, they're trying to get us with these damn chicken sandwiches. I'm not doing it. Um, but no, like Chick-fil-A will do, they will, it just to hire like an employee, forget a franchise, but like someone who works there, they go, they literally go to your house. They talk to your neighbors. If you say you go to a certain church, they will send someone. They will invest. They they do that kind of investigation to make sure that anyone they employ and hire, you know, especially in certain positions, are are going to be of the same caliber or worth of what they stand for. Right, and I think that's critical. I think before they even put on a badge and a gun, you you got to know who you're getting, and 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 I think you got you got to start recruiting the right and vetting the right people. The second thing is is that we've got to get back to a community policing model. Hmm. And, and community policing, part of the problem is, in that, especially in a lot of inner-city neighborhoods, you have a lot of white officers who work in a particular neighborhood, don't live in a neighborhood, okay? They've got no investment whatsoever in that neighborhood, um, and they, don't, they haven't built relationships. They don't know these young men and women in those neighborhoods, right. and they go home to their, their nice little suburban communities, and they have no skin in that game. So right. Community policing is, is a model where you get back into the community, you invest in the community, you serve in the community. Um, we have departments. There's one particular department down here where I live. The police officers actually work in the food pantry once a week mm-hmm. in, a, in a black church serving people. Right. OK. White right. Officers serving the community. They know everybody. They live in the community. OK. They, they, they volunteered the Boys and Girls Club. Okay. So, and, and I, and I mentor with them. So I know these guys and they are invested. That's community policing at its best. Right. That, it's a, it's a, it's a game changer because now when you pull someone over, there's a good chance you know who they are. They know you that you know their mom and their daddy. Right. You know their aunts and their uncles. And that's the way it used to be when I was growing up. That's exactly what yes. we, we knew the officers by name. They knew us. They knew our parents. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. 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 So it's a different dynamic when you know who that kid is and who his parents are, his family is. Now, now, Newark, Newark, um, Jersey, Dirty Jers. That's what we used to call it. Dirty Jers. I grew up in Harlem, New York. And, you know, Jersey, Jersey had a reputation. You know what I'm saying? So I'm pretty sure, uh, um, you know, over your career or years there in New Jersey um, and, and the surrounding areas, I should say, you probably had... Uh, some some crazy, crazy times or crazy. I mean, does, is there any case or cases or, you know, like in particular, like one or two that stand out that was pretty wild or something that, you know, that that, uh, but, you know, I mean, look, let's just keep it 100. Everybody want to be James Bond until they James Bond, you know, and, and people don't understand that it, it ain't the same thing, you know. You know, it, it ain't TV. It ain't the movies. You know, it's probably you know more, you know way more scarier than it's been uh, glorified, or, or way more intense and dangerous and and whatnot. And and so share with us, man. Share with us. You know, uh, one of those stories, if you will, uh, a case maybe that stood out, uh, or something wild or crazy that happened from uh, there in Jersey. Well, there are many, and you're right, Carl. It, it is uh, you know working in Newark. Um, I, I did have the advantage since I was born and raised there, even when I was a teenager and I was in high school and college. You know, I had the advantage over a lot of my colleagues, especially a lot of my white colleagues, that mm-hmm. um, I spent a lot of time in around Elizabeth, Newark, East Orange, in the city. So I knew the street, you know. Right. Um, I, knew, I, knew the, I knew the language of the street. And it gave me a, a huge advantage over my white counterparts. So right. there wasn't anywhere in Newark that I couldn't go, that I, I couldn't fit in, I couldn't blend, I couldn't understand. Um, I related to, um, growing up, a uh, black man in America, hey, man, I've been racially profiled before I was an FBI agent. 
I was racially profiled when I was an FBI agent. Okay, so, pause that. Um, Talk about that right away. Right away, because that's what I really want to know, man. I want to know the duality of, of having that 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 uh, status or, you know, the badge and, and being a part of that system, but from a black perspective, you know what I mean? And and I think a lot of people probably want to hear about that. You know, what 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 how does that resonate with you or when it happened? Tell me about when that when that happened, when you were profiled. Yeah, I, I think you have to uh, I have to go back a little bit before I was even an FBI agent to give keep it in the proper context. All right. I was a, um, when I was a college student at Rutgers University in New Brunswick in my sophomore year, I can remember specifically, you know, I was working part-time um, while I was taking classes. And um, this one particular day, I was uh, doing my job, working for the dining hall, and I decided on my lunch break I was going to take a ride in downtown New Brunswick to go visit uh, one of my boys who was living downtown. And this is before and you, was you joined? Oh, yeah. This was when I was in college. OK. OK. And so so I'm going to see one of my, my homeboys. I get pulled over by a New Brunswick police officer and I uh, can't figure out why I wasn't speeding. I wasn't doing anything wrong, you know. And uh, so he rolls up, asks me for ID. I give him driver's license, regist- you know, registration, all that good stuff. He goes back to his car. He comes back to my car. He says, step out of the car. You're under arrest. And I was like, I'm under arrest for what? He said, well, driving on a revoke list. So well, I'm not on the revoke list. I said, you got all my paperwork. My registration is current. My license is current. My insurance is current. I'm not on the revoke list. And uh, so he said, step out, threw me up against the, the, the car, handcuffed mm-hmm. me, uh, towed my car, uh, took me down to the station, put me in a holding cell, took my belt, now, what, my shoelaces. Was, was, the officer, was, the, was the officer white? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He was white. Yeah. Um, his supervisor, sergeant. When he got when I got back to the police department, he uh, he asked the, the and I guess the guy was a rookie cop or whatever. But he said, did you search him? And he said, yeah, I searched him out at the scene. He says, yeah, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really show you how to search him. You know, like I see you want to use me as his guinea pig to show the rookie how to really search a guy. Wow. Like this, is after, this, this, wow this is after you're already there. This is after as I'm after the police department at the station. So this, this little sergeant throws me up against the wall, and uh, then he kicks my feet out from a from away from the wall and kicks them apart. And I was literally almost falling on my face. And in that moment, uh, the incredible amount of just dehumanization. Uh, here I am. I, I'm a I'm a college student. Uh, I've never had any problem with the law. Uh, my father made sure of that. Cause dad, dad didn't play that game. Dad, dad was strict. He was a hardworking man. And he always brought me up to be respectful, um, do the right thing. And so I can't even imagine and fathom that I'm in a, this situation, you know. And um, I just right. felt so dehumanized, you know. And so the long story short of that is um, I get out. I get bonded out. My parents come buy me out. I go to motor vehicle. They were like, Mr. Graves, you were never on the vocalist. <laughs> so... The whole thing was just, was trumped up. It was it was bogus. The whole arrest. Right. And I concluded was he saw a young black kid driving in a new, in a college town in a bad part of town in New Brunswick, um, thinking I probably just bought drugs or something. So he just he he had, you know, just um, brought up some trumped up charges of probable cause to pull me over, which was I was on a revoke list, which I wasn't. Right. Um, the whole case got dismissed. But, you know, when you have an incident like that, it, it impacts you for the rest of yeah. your life. Yeah. How, how did that you make know? you feel? How did that impact yeah, you? I mean, I, I, mean, I was embarrassed, uh, embarrassed for my, for my father and my mother. Uh, you know, it's just it's one of those situations. Where we talk about it a lot as kids growing up about how, you know, um, back then we didn't call driving while black DWB. It was just being harassed by the police. And a lot of a lot of kids in my neighborhood experienced that. And so when it happened to me for the first time, you know, it really shaped my 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 view um, on how some police officers, not all police officers, but some police officers mistreat um, people of color. And so um, I don't know if that played into in any way in my decision to go into law enforcement, um, hmm. because really 
I started out my career uh, in banking. Uh, I was an economics major at Rutgers in the banking industry. Uh, then I worked for the Department of uh, the Treasury and, and then as an investigator, and then I got recruited to work for the FBI. But it's because of that experience that allowed me to understand, relate to what a lot of brothers and sisters deal with every day with racial profiling. And so mm-hmm. for a good part of my career, I ended up working in, in the area of civil rights because I wanted to make sure that I could be a voice for those who did not have a voice, whose civil rights might have been violated, wow. and to ensure that justice is equally distributed and applied under the rule of law. Because right. I understood on a personal level how it affected me. And so when when we start seeing evidences of excessive force, you know, when Rodney King and you know, uh, Michael Brown and, and George. Come Floyd on, there was no excessive force there. Come on. It only looked like they were beating him. They, 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 the sticks weren't really hitting him. Come on now. Come on. Come on, guy. Come on. Yeah, so I, 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 it resonates with me on a very personal level because I, I've experienced what it means to be falsely accused of something. And without question, there's no doubt in my mind, the only reason why I was pulled over is because I was driving black. Wow. Uh, real quickly, tell tell me about when when you were actually um a part of the bureau when you were you know on on that side and it still happened. Yeah, so it, it almost immediately when I when I got to Newark, um, I can remember one night I was working late and um, and I actually uh, was driving my personal car. Most of the time, I, I was able to drive. Uh, when I first started, I was given a government car during the day, but I had to. Um, drive my personal car into the office, and then I would drive the government car, and then I would drive my personal car home. So I was driving my personal car home one night after working, and uh, I had an Acura Integra. It was black, gold rims. Oh yeah, yeah, the Act Right. We called it. We used to call that the Act Right. Yeah. Yeah. The Act Right. So I'm driving home, and uh, all of a sudden, and lights go on. I, I I'm, I'm driving, not speeding. Doing nothing wrong, I get pulled over. Police officer who's white pulls me over. He's license registration. Now, now hold so up. I get now, now before you go further, I just want to just want to just want to feel this with you. Now you you got pulled over, right? Now when you were getting pulled over, you're thinking, what the hell or whatever. Not to mention you like, I'm that guy now. I'm that guy, right? You're like, you know, I'm just asking, like, what is your what is your mindset at the time? Like, are you thinking because this has got to feel differently now? Than it did, you know, then, or does it feel the same? Well, I, uh, when I was working on the job, um, one of the things they tell you is that when you are, and I'm armed, all right. Mm-hmm. And one thing mm-hmm. about FBI agents, you know, we don't we don't wear uniforms, okay. Right. Our uniform right. is at the time my uniform was typically a suit, uh, or if depending on what kind of uh, work I was doing at the time, I could be just just dressed down. I mean. Just wearing a, you know, a T-shirt, uh, right. uh, golf shirt, whatever. Right, right. And um, so it's not like I got police all over me so that if the man pulls me over, he knows who I am. But now I'm, I'm armed. And so for my safety and the officer's safety, I've been trained to advise him, you know, that I'm, a, I'm armed. I'm a law enforcement officer so that for his safety and mine, we understand who I am. I've, I've disclosed who I am. So. He doesn't make, you know, uh, an assumption that I'm, I'm some armed criminal. Right. And so anyway, so I, I you know, I advised him who I was and I, uh, he asked for my identification. I showed him my, my, my badge and my credentials. And so he says, okay, I'll be right back. So he, he goes to his car. He comes back. He hands me my credentials. He says, you know, thank you very much, Aiden Graves. He goes, uh, reason why I pulled you over is I didn't see your registration sticker on, he goes in Jersey. You used to have a registration sticker decal on the front left inside of your windshield. Yeah, yeah. Um, my registration sticker was there for him to see. And when, when he pulled, before he pulled me over, he was facing me as I was coming towards him. So he so passed he you and then turned around. And he turned, I passed him. He was stationary right. facing me. Right, right. As right. I passed him, he turned around, followed me, pulled me over. He would have had to see my registration sticker. There's no way he could not have seen it. And so the, the only conclusion, uh, he let me go, but the only conclusion that I reached was he, he pulled me over because I'm black. Absolutely. And he had to come up with an explanation of why. 
that was his probable cause. So, so you know, and, and to backtrack just just momentarily, right? Because this is a question that came up in my mind and a lot of people's minds, right? Why is it that when they do these things, right? You know, uh, uh, such as what happened to you when you were in college and whatnot, right? And and, and you know, you have to maybe hire a lawyer. You may you may have to go through all of this, you know, trauma, embarrassment, and and then you know, it's oh my bad. You know, that, that's that's all it is after that. Like, why, why, why doesn't anything happen to the officers who inflict or who perpetrate these uh, falsehoods and these, you know, the, the, you know, to create these situations? Why doesn't anything happen to them? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting question. I think a lot of that has to do with the, some in some cases, the lack of accountability in law enforcement and in, in our judicial system in general. Uh, we have to hold police officers to the highest standard. Uh, I held myself out every day to the highest standard. Um, I, 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 I swore an, an oath to protect the Constitution, to, to uphold the Constitution, to protect the rights of every citizen, because they're the people who pay my salary. Um, and it's the right thing to do. And so um, I think we have to hold our law enforcement um, officers to, to that standard, and that means – even when we make mistakes, that we have to be transparent enough and honest enough to be able to discipline our people when they do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what what happens when you don't? You have what we have now, a client exactly. distrust. Exactly. And so that's why I think there has to be accountability, there has to be responsibility, and there has to be disciplinary action taken when we don't live up to that oath that we took. Well, well, what system is in place for that? What's in place? What system do we have that's in place that that uh, uh, holds them accountable? Well, in, in theory, each police department has an internal affairs office that's supposed to investigate allegations or claims of police misconduct. Um, again, if those systems are only as good as as the people who in our leadership want to enforce them. And so oftentimes we'll see situations where police officers are investigated through internal affairs, then the appropriate disciplinary action is not taken. And so you have a system that allows officers to continue on without any type of reprimand. And then so, you know, it, it, it allows them to have um, an ability to feel that they have impunity. So basically, that's like me. That's like me doing something wrong, and then my mama or my grandmama having to investigate it. Exactly, and and I think there has to be a separation of duties. Like for instance, um, I think when you have allegations of, of police misconduct, excessive force, um, those cases should not be investigated by a local district attorney's office. I think those inve- those investigations should be investigated on a federal level. A perfect example of that is Rodney King. When Rodney King was, in, when the officers in California were in LAPD were charged in that case, if you remember, they were tried by the state mm-hmm. and they were acquitted. Mm-hmm. Okay, they were acquitted. It wasn't until the which, which, in my opinion, is like, and how does something like that even happen? How does, how does, how does? <laughs> well, it, I mean, it, yeah, it should not have. And so my point is. It, it took until the department, the federal authorities, the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, and the FBI conducted the investigation that those officers were then indicted uh, right. and charged and convicted. And so what I'm saying is I think that a lot of times the systems that we have in place for policing the police um, are improperly left to people who are too close to the police in those local jurisdictions. And I think you need a, a separate, independent, unbiased um, unit to review those cases where they can actually take a more unbiased, independent um, review of that case and prosecution of that case. And how do we how do we make something like that happen? We, as a, you know, what I mean, how does something like that get put into uh, effect? I think people have to ask for um, the the federal government, Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division to get more involved from the outset in these cases, not wait until they've been adjudicated on the local level. 
I right. think from the outset, whenever they happen, I think the federal authorities need to go in and conduct the investigation from the from the initiation of the of the act. Okay. All right. Yeah. So basically, I had a case like I had a case like that where I, my partner and I decided to take a case um, as soon as it occurred because we knew that the local authorities probably would not investigate it um, as thoroughly as we would on the federal level. But okay, okay. So, so, all right. Not to jump ahead, but so, so why? So, what is it then? Right. Like like at the core of it all. Right. So then you have the uh, the district attorney and you have everything local. Right. Now, why are they all in bed together? You, you understand what I mean? Or, or what I'm asking? Why is it that it, it, it behooves them or it's, you know, uh, uh, why is it a situation that they don't look at like like how the federal uh, government or, you know, outside authorities would look at it? Hey. You know, we're, we're, you know, let's investigate this. Where's the injustice here? Um, let's look at it from a, the standpoint that it's not us and them. You know, um, why is it that they're all on the same team, so to speak? Why is there some sort of favoritism or some sort of uh, it would be in their uh, favor to act? Or is it just that they're lazy? I mean, what is it? Well, I think you've got to understand the relationship between the local prosecutors and the police departments. Explain that. Remember, well, the police officers investigate cases, make arrests. If those cases go to truck, go to court, it's the local prosecutors who prosecute the case, right? The officers make the arrest, prosecutors prosecute. The prosecutors rely on the, on the evidence and credibility of the police departments in order to bring their prosecution. So you have a, you have a relationship between the local prosecutors and the police departments where they have to rely on each other in order to make their cases. And so now if you have a case where the officer is the one who's being alleged to have committed the criminal act, mm-hmm. now you as a prosecutor, you realize now that if there is a, a conviction against that officer, and a lot of those cases that he's made, now become called into question. Uh, and any cases that he may do going uh, forward or have to testify to, so now he it would, it would, it, and if you worked a lot of, and if you worked as a prosecutor or a DA, if you worked a lot of those cases, then that messes up your credibility and your record as well. It could potentially mean that some of those cases could even be overturned if it's found that the police officer acted inappropriately. And I'll give you a perfect example. I think there's a, currently a, there's a, a case in Baltimore City, Baltimore Police Department, where officers were alleged to have um, fabricated evidence, planted evidence against um, civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, now, every case that those officers worked on is now potentially going to be placed under review because you would have to consider the fact that maybe they violated or acted inappropriately in the arrest of all those other cases that they worked. Right. So you can see where the prosecutor can end up having all those cases that they worked hard for overturned right, right. by the bad acts of a couple of police officers. It jeopardizes the whole criminal system if you have bad cops who right. are doing bad things. And so there is an incestuous relationship between the local prosecutors and the police officers because it impacts their credibility and their credibility at trial, their credibility mm-hmm. before grand juries, and it could it could result in a, a lot of cases being dismissed. Gotcha. Therein lies the problem. Yeah, okay? yeah, th- th- yeah, yeah. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. That hence hence why we need when why we need outside uh, non biased accounting, if you will. Right, because like in the instance of the uh, Ahmad Aubrey, the young man who was jogging in Brunswick, Georgia, was running down the street. Two white men jumped out of a truck, pursued him, and shot him and killed him. That case happened in February. It wasn't until months later that the public found out about it. And in that time, several local prosecutors had to recuse themselves from that case because of their relationships with two, one, or at least one of the defendants who was a, who was a, a cop. 
Mm. So you see how the, the relationships between the local police department and the prosecutors can cause right. not not only a delay in justice, and in some cases it can actually um, hinder justice being served. Right, because it would be too much like right for people to just do what's right. Right, exactly. There's there's yeah. there's a re, there's too too close a relationship. Uh, obviously, in a perfect world, you would say the prosecutors would do their job irrespective of who the officer was. But we know in reality, uh, for the reasons I just stated before, right. that sometimes those relationships can and the and and their objectivity of the prosecutors can become muddied because of their close relationships and reliance on each other in a lot of their cases. Right. Wow. Well, we got we got some work to do then. We got some work to do. Obviously, you know, there's been a lot, you know, that hasn't changed. Obviously, you, know, you see what's happening now. Um, and, and these are the reasons why. So touching on what's happening now, right? What are your thoughts on uh, BLM? What are your thoughts on, on that? On Black Lives Matter? On Black Lives uh, Matter. I, I don't know that much about the organization itself and the leadership of the organization. Um, but as, as it re, as regard, in regards to the movement, I think the movement is needed. Um, it, there's an awareness that I think, uh, our entire nation, in fact, the world has come in the aftermath of George Floyd. Um, we in the black community have been talking about Black Lives Matter since 1619. Right. Um, right. But unfortunately, throughout the years, the, those cries of injustice have fallen on deaf ears to, in a lot of respects. Um, but now we, thankfully, with the invent of the camera phone, uh, a lot of the allegations that we've been making as black and brown people of, of police misconduct through the years is finally being um, illuminated on a very great large scale so that the whole world can see what we've been saying for years. Right. And I think it's this awareness in the, in the whole Black Lives Matter movement and Colin Kaepernick, uh, who took a knee and a lot of other people to shine the light on on injustices uh, against black and brown people. Um, I think I think it's a it's a good thing. And I think that we're having some positive discussions uh, about it, uh, even within the law enforcement community. Uh, within the white community, I think uh, I'm encouraged by so many different people and diverse groups of people all over the world who are now standing and realizing what we've been saying for a long time. Right. Um, that black lives do matter. Yeah. And, and it's it's almost baffling to me that we should even have to explain what that means or why someone, you know, you know, why a, a, a white person or someone else would say all lives matter. Or, you know, that we're only saying only us. You know what I mean? Like, well, how, how, how is that even possible that you would take it as we're saying only our lives matter? We're saying black lives matter also because they haven't mattered since 1619, as you say. Yeah. Well, I heard a great um, a, a great example of, of black lives matter. Well, you know, some people say, well, well, it should be all lives matter. You know, every October, the NFL... Uh, honors breast cancer awareness month by wearing pink and everybody embraces that everybody right. embraces the, the the pink the ribbon um, and so what they're saying is it's it's not that all cancer doesn't matter <laughs> it's that breast cancer really matters in this moment and so I, I thought about that, and I said, I think that's a perfect and a fitting example of what we're saying. Is it, we're not saying that all lives don't matter, but what we're saying is that because of the history of systemic racism in this country, we need to bring awareness to the fact that there have been injustices against black and brown people, and black lives do matter. Um, so I, I, I thought the breast cancer analogy was a perfect example of what we're trying to say. Well, brother, let me tell you something. From one black man to another, I am honored, honored to have talked to you today and, and, and to have you have shared your story and your journey with us. Um, you know, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you and those who are like you out there who are, who have that mindset, you know, who who care, you know, um, who want to do the right thing, you know, um, 
So I just want to say from me to you, man, thank you. Thank you for your journey. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your career. And, and, and thank you for your words of wisdom. Letting that rain down on us today. I really appreciate that for real. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Carl, and I, I appreciate yeah, you giving us a platform that, you know, we can share um, our experiences. You know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of black law enforcement officers, men and female, you know, we, we, we exist in a system. We try to make it better. We understand it's not perfect. But, you know, I firmly believe that you're either part uh, of the problem or part of the solution. And I, I think um, God has given me and blessed me to be part of the solution. So thank you. You heard it right here, man. This wraps up another edition of Black Arm of the Law. Very, very special guest today, retired special agent, uh, FBI agent George Graves. One more time, cue clap machine, cue clap machine, one more time. I look forward to seeing you in Mayberry. You're welcome anytime, Carl. Come on down to Waters Fine. Black Arm of the Law is hosted by Carl Payne. Produced by Ken Johnson, Bart Phillips, and Carl Payne. Assistant producer, Lauren Turner. Consulting producers, FBI Special Agent Retired Don Taylor and FBI Special Agent Retired George Graves. Edited by Rick Chill. Theme music by Jeff Red, courtesy of Soul Real Records. Executive producers, Ken Johnson and Bart Phillips. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.